0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, this morning, we continue our preaching series in the Minor Prophets, and and this is the idea. Each week, we're preaching through an entire book of the Minor Prophets in a single sermon, and so if, if... if you're here with us, if you're joining us at home, you're going to want to have a copy of God's word in front of you. I highly recommend that. Um, and, and I will go a step further and encourage you to have an analog, physical, paper copy of God's word in front of you. We have some of those in the pew backs in front of you. We, we have um, some paperback copies in the Geneva house as well. If you're using one of those hardcover, uh, Bibles in the pews, we're, we're going to be on page 760. That is where Joel begins. Um, having that physical copy is is going to make it a lot easier to follow. To follow today it's going to give you a, a better sense of place as we kind of page back and forth through Joel's three chapters. Now as, as we open up the book of Joel, and as as we read this, and if you were reading this in, in the week leading up to today, following that reading plan that we handed out, I, in fact, a quick plug, I think there are some additional copies of that reading plan on the table as you leave today. One of the things that's most immediately striking about Joel isn't what's in the text, but rather what isn't there, like in, in the opening verses. In fact, if, if you compare this with last week, what, what you'll notice is that unlike Hosea and many of the other minor prophets, there are no specific historical references to help us date the book. No references to, to kings, which uh, the reference to, to kings at, at the time that a, a prophet was was prophesying, that, that's a very common thing to include right away in verse one. There's none of that. No, no mention of kings at all. Pastor Todd, in, in the opening in the opening introduction sermon, mentioned the, uh, the, the importance of the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire in the history of God's people. And, and we will see in, in the pages of Joel, there is no specific reference to the Assyrians or to the Babylonians either. Because of this, now we could, we could work to make an educated guess. As to the date of Joel, and, and believe me, a lot of ink has been spilled by scholars, men and women, who are much smarter, much more intelligent than I. A lot of ink has been spilled in order to kind of hone in on the, uh, the, the date or, or the, the possible date range of this book. But ultimately, look, ultimately we can't know for sure. So a- anytime we run across a dilemma like this in God's Word... I want to propose that we should be curious. This should invoke a a sense of curiosity in us. We we should ask the question, why? Why? Why are specific historical references missing from this book? And and look, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture tells us that everything God intended to be in the text of Joel is in the text of Joel. This means that these specific historical references, they're they're not missing. They haven't been forgotten. So why? Why leave them out? Well, I think we get a clue in the opening verses of our text. And so if if you're not there, open up to Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And we're not, we're not gonna see anything really anywhere else in scripture about Joel or his father. Again, that's not gonna be helpful in terms of dating the book. But he continues. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in these days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. You see, while the book of Joel was written to a particular people at a particular time, there's a a, a very specific sense in which it was written for generation after generation after generation of God's people. Now, now this is true for the entire Bible, to to be sure. The entire Bible is written for generation after generation of of, of God's people, But, but there's a particular universality to the text of Joel. And so here we are, another generation. And the book of Joel, and the message of Joel and the truth's of Joel that are revealed to us, they're for us as well. And so we would do well to listen, to give the Lord our ear this morning. Now if, if I were to summarize what the book of Joel is about in a single sentence, it would be this. The book of Joel is about a threat of danger and a way to safety. That's what the book of Joel is about. In a nutshell, it's, it's about a threat of danger and a way to safety. Now, naturally, this leads us to the following two questions, and and these two questions are going to serve as our outline this morning. We're going to be answering these two questions. Question number one, what is the threat of danger? What is the threat of danger? And, And as we will see, this isn't merely a danger that God's people faced centuries ago, but in fact, this danger is a danger that we all face today as well. Remember, there's a particular universality to this text. It's it's for us today. The second question then is, is what is the way to safety? Again, remember, as yet another generation of God's people, the, the way to safety for the original audience is the way to safety for us here today as well. And so let's take these in turn. Let's begin with this threat of danger. What what exactly is this threat of danger? Well, it's something called the Day of the Lord. Something called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is the central theme for the prophet Joel. Joel uses this, this phrase, the Day of the Lord, Five times. The first occurs in chapter 1 following the description of a locust plague. That that it appears the Lord's people have have endured at some point in time in their recent past. So let's take a look at this this plague then to begin. This is how the the prophet describes a plague beginning in verse 4. He says, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So this, this is the plague that God's people have just endured. Wave after wave after wave after wave of locusts. Destroying crops and everything in their path until nothing was left. Now, our our kids, they have these National Geographic books, like full of facts at home, and so we're big National Geographic fans. In fact, Callan and Greer maybe know this already, but on the National Geographic website, this is what they have to say about locusts and locust swarms. They say, locust swarms are typically in motion and can cover vast distances. Some species may travel 81 miles or more in a day. They can stay in the air for long periods, regularly taking nonstop trips across the Red Sea. In 1954, a swarm flew from Northwest Africa to Great Britain, while in 1988, another made the lengthy trek from West Africa to the Caribbean, a trip of more than 3,100 miles in just 10 days. That's a little disturbing, uh, but that's not even the beginning. A desert locust swarm can be 460 miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts in less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day. So a swarm of locusts of such size would eat, listen to this, 423 million pounds of plants every day. To put it into context, to swarm the size of Paris. This is terrifying. A swarm the size of Paris can eat the same amount of food in one day as half the population of France. Needless to say, the destruction left in the wake of this swarm of locusts would have been devastating. And we see evidence of this on the faces of the people that Joel vividly describes. He says, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. That's funny, National Geographic talked about Paris and France, they drink wine. And wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for her bride, for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourns, the priests mourn, and the ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up the oil languishes. It was devastating. It would have been a total loss. You think we have supply and food constraints now. We go to the grocery stores and the shelves are still full of food. We, we go to the restaurant and, the, and the, the menus are still full of entrees and, and drinks. No more wine for the drunkards. There would be no way for God's people to escape, or to take the edge off, or to calm the anxiety, or to numb the pain. This was a plague that they would experience in complete sobriety. There was was no more wine to be drank. Even the priests mourn. There's not even wine or grain to use in their religious ceremonies in the temple. Now, the the plague of locusts, this is bad. This is is really bad. But interestingly enough, this is not the danger that Joel is warning God's people about. The danger he's warning his people about is even worse. Verse 15 of chapter 1, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord, there's that phrase, for the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. It is is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? You see, the plague of, of locusts, it's, it's not the threat. It's, it's merely a foretaste of the threat. The plague of locusts, as it turns out, is a kind and gracious warning to God's people. It's a warning of a, a still greater judgment, Yet to come. That brings us to chapter two, which is where we find the second occurrence of this phrase, the day of the Lord. You see, in in chapter one, we saw this past threat of the plague of locusts. In chapter two, Joel paints this vivid picture for us of a future threat, threat, the, the future threat of an invading army. Take a look at chapter two, verse one blow a trumpet in zion sound an alarm on the holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the lord it is near they have the foretaste now they're told the day of the lord is near sound the alarms they say a day of darkness and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. And so imagine yourself in a a bit of a valley, surrounded by mountains. And imagine these mountains covered in darkness and blackness. And imagine the terror when you realize that the darkness on the mountains is an invading army that covers it. It's a different kind of swarm. It's a different kind of plague that is about to descend. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains of great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through all the years of all generations. This is, this is an army with, with unmatched power. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like a garden is like the Garden of Eden before them. <laughs> Listen to this. It's, it's as if before them is paradise, but what do they leave behind them? A desolate wilderness. Nothing escapes them. What we're talking about here in chapter two with, with this invading army, we're talking a, about a threat. Unlike any other. We're we're, we're talking about a a threat, unlike any the Lord's people would have seen. A threat that makes that swarm of locusts, NationalGeographic.com described, look like child's play. You see, the the locusts destroyed crops. This invading army covers a land and swarms. As well, but it it brings with it comprehensive and inescapable destruction. Comprehensive and inescapable destruction. The, The prophet says that their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, they run as with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame, a fire devouring the struggle, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. And as you might imagine, if you're in this valley and watching them descend the mountain, all faces before them grow pale. Because as this inescapable threat draws near, the people know their fate. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their past. Comprehensive in their destruction. Perfect in their discipline and coordination. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his own path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. There's no stopping them. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. The walls are no... The walls are going to provide no protection. They, they climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The star and the moon are darkened. And the stars withdraw. They're shining. How as we... As we saw in in verse 1, this vivid picture of destruction that Joel describes for us, and and the army that brings it, this, Joel tells us, this is the day of the Lord. And as Joel said in verse 1 of chapter 2, the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And as powerful and destructive as this invading army is, it's not the ultimate danger either. You see, it, it actually gets worse. You see, there's, there's something far greater to fear than a plague of locusts, and there's something far greater to fear that a swarming, invading army, bringing about comprehensive and inescapable destruction. Verse 11, the Lord utters His voice before whose army? Whose army is it? It's His army. It's God's army. The Lord utters His voice before His army. For His camp is exceedingly great. That's right. The general marching in front of this army is none other than the Lord Himself. He who executes his word is powerful. That's an understatement. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And then this question: Who can endure it? Who can endure it? You see that the day of the Lord, it's it's an inescapable day. Of reckoning. It's a, a day of, the, of just judgment, the, the just judgment of a holy and righteous God for the sin, the idolatry, and the unfaithfulness of his people. And it's terrifying. And by the way, this is, this is the beauty of the poetry of the prophets. Simple prose could could never capture this scene quite like the poetry of the prophets. Now, the the book of Joel ends in chapter 3 with a picture not of God's people, but rather the nations being judged by the Lord in yet another image of the day of the Lord. And so let's turn there. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days, and at at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations, so there's this this in-gathering, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat merely means Yahweh judges. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. And my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So there's this ingathering of the surrounding enemy nations who have done unmentionable things to God's people, such as selling them into slavery. And so he's gathering them for judgment. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. And I will return your payment on your own head. So he, he speaks about a restoration of his people. So you, you've sold them. You, you've sent them, scattered them all over the land. I'll stir them up from the places that you've sent them. I'll I'll return your payment on your own head. The Lord says, as you have done to them, so too will I do to you. The the picture that the prophet is painting here in chapter three is is a little bit different than a plague of locusts or an invading army. The, The picture here in Joel three is that of a courtroom. And court is convening. And in verses 11 and 12, the nations receive their summons to appear before the judge. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then the same imagery we saw in the previous chapter, the sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw, they're shining. Once again, there it is, the day of the Lord. And you'll notice that the setting for the day of the Lord is what joel calls the valley of decision now now don't misunderstand this phrase the valley of decision here in verse 14 it it almost sounds as though the nations are being gathered up on the day of the lord and they on this day get to make their final decision with respect to, to god It's one final chance for them to make the decision to bow the knee to the one and only true God, to to choose to worship him. One final opportunity to, to repent and to pledge allegiance to the king, but Rest assured, this is is not what is happening here in the valley of decision. That's not what's happening at all. You see, there's no decision to be made by the people. The time for decisions with respect to the Lord has passed. To clarify, it might be better to call this valley not the valley of decision, but the valley of the verdict. This is verdict valley. And other translations render it in that way. You see, the nations have sinned against God's people. The enemy nations, they've, they've sinned against God Himself. And the all knowing, all seeing Lord has weighed all the evidence and He's gathered them in the valley of the verdict to deliver His verdict. And the verdict is guilty. Now it's at this point that I want to remind you what we said about the book of Joel in the intro. There's a, a certain universality to this text. It was intended to be told to generation after generation after generation. That's because that the day of the Lord isn't just near for God's people in Joel's day. but it's near for you and it's near for me as well. I mean, think about it. If, if it was near for God's people then, how much more near would it be for us? And, 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 and surely there was some kind of near-term fulfillment of this, this prophecy, but the ultimate long-term fulfillment is, is near for us also. It's, you see, it's, it's not just the nations who will be served as summons to appear for judgment in the valley of the verdict. But so will we all. The Apostle Paul writes this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who appears before the judgment seat of Christ? All of us. Christian, non-Christian, old, young, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And just like this inescapable army bearing down on God's people, coming, swarming down off the mountain, there's no way around it. And there's no escaping it. And the thing is that the Lord is perfectly just and the judgment that he renders is one that is perfectly just. And look, there will be a day when the political debates will stop. We like to chop it up about what exactly is just and what exactly is not just. There will be no debate on the day of the Lord, we won't be taking to Facebook to argue over who is right and who is wrong. The maker of heaven and earth, the author of life, the supreme judge, will be the one who decides. He will render his verdict according to his will and his definition, which, by the way, is revealed to us in a way that is, that is clear in His word. The book of Joel, it's about a threat of danger and a way to safety. This is the danger that Joel writes about. This is the danger that Joel warns us about generation after generation after generation. The danger, brothers and sisters, is this. The day of the Lord is near. perhaps your face is growing pale as well. And you're asking yourself the question, what then exactly is the way to safety? Go back to chapter two, verse 12. Chapter two, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Yet, even now, I think you could make an argument that these are the three most important words in the entire book of Joel. The entire book pivots on these three words. Yet, even now, if you're the type that that writes in your Bibles, underlines, circles... Take out a pen, take out a pencil, underline, circle, star, highlight those three words. Yet even now, you see, these three words, they're the hope and the testimony of every Christian. And look, I know that there's at least someone here today or there's someone watching the live stream today and you think you're beyond the reach of God. You think, look, there's, there's no way that he could ever forgive me for what I've done. There's no way that he could ever truly accept me. There's no way that he could ever truly love me. There's no way that I could truly be reconciled to him. I've, I've, I've made my bed and now I need to sleep in it. He could never accept me. He could never change me. Look, this is, if this is you, this is what I, I, I want you to hear the Lord saying to you. I see your sin. I see your unfaithfulness. I, I see your idolatry. I see your cold, lifeless, and fake worship. I see your pride and your arrogance. I see your unjust treatment of others. I see your failure to love your neighbor and your brother. I see your self gratifying ways. I, I see your lust and your greed and your unquenchable thirst for more. Yet, even now, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. The Lord, in the the face of this danger of the day of the Lord, he, he calls his people to repentance. He calls them to turn from their sin, to turn from their unfaithfulness. He invites us this morning to turn from our idols, to turn from our sin, to turn from our unfaithfulness and to return to him. Not just outwardly with your actions, in a, a keeping up appearances so that other people around me kind of think that I've done the right thing sort of way. But inwardly, with all your heart, he says, return to me. Return to the Lord your God. Why? How? How could this possibly be How, how could a, a people who are deserving of a fate such as this, justly deserving of a fate such as this, how, how could we be invited to return to God? And why here to a God like that? Well, he says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful. This is who he is. He's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love where our sin abounds, his steadfast love and mercy, it abounds all the more. And he relents over disaster. You might recognize these words from Exodus 34. And relent is exactly what the Lord does. In verses 19 through 24 of chapter 2, we read that the Lord has pity on his people. He removes the threat of the invading army. He once again satisfies them with grain and wine and oil. Listen to this. Blessing them with everything that they lost in the swarm of locusts. He says, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. That phrase is, is interesting. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. You, you, you see, it, one might think that on the day of the Lord, if in fact it's the Lord who brings judgment, then the best thing to do on said day would be to run as far away from him as possible. Wouldn't that make sense? Distance yourself from the threat, right? If it's the day of the Lord... Let's hightail it out of here. Let's run away from the Lord. Distance feels like safety, but, but that's not true. It's not true. You see, for the Christian, the greatest blessing that we could possibly enjoy and the greatest measure of safety that we could possibly enjoy is found in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 16 tells us that in his presence there is fullness of joy, at his right hand pleasures forevermore. This is the hope of the Christian. In Revelation 21, we we read, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Look, if, if your picture of heaven and eternal joy is chilling on the beach sipping Mai Tais with some friends and with some family, it has nothing to do with being in the presence of Jesus. Let me suggest that, that your, your picture of paradise needs adjusting and let me also warn you that you might need to return to the Lord your God. You might need to make Jesus your treasure today. And then we have we have this incredible promise beginning in, in verse 28. Peter actually quotes Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, at Pentecost in Acts 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. You see the promise for Joel here, the promise that the Lord is is making to us isn't merely that the Lord will make a way for a, a people to draw near to him in safety. It's not merely that he will dwell in their midst, but that he will pour out his Spirit upon them, that he will actually dwell in his people through his Holy Spirit, uniting them together with his Son, empowering their obedience to his word and to his law, and as a sign and a seal of the inheritance that is theirs, that is yours, that is ours. In Christ, the book of Joel. It's it's about a threat of danger and a way to safety. Remember, not not just for God's people then, but for us now. What is the threat of danger? What's well, the Inescapable just judgment of a holy God that awaits us all. It's the day of the Lord in the valley of the verdict. What is the way of escape? Draw near to the Lord and call upon his name in repentance and faith. Church, Jesus is our way of escape. And because of the love which, which, with which the, the Father loved us, he sent his Son to make this way. He sent his Son to be the way. And so there are two simple takeaways that I, I want to send everyone away with today. The first simple takeaway is this, repent and trust in the Lord. This is my, this is my plea to you today. Repent and trust the Lord. Seek refuge in Him. Joel says this in verses 31 and 32 of chapter 2. He says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass. Listen to this. This is the promise of Joel. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just like everyone will face the Lord, Je- the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment, on the, Lord's, on the day of the Lord, so too will everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Are you among those that the Lord calls? Are, are you among those that will escape? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved today. And look, this, this goes not just for non-Christians, it's for those of us who are Christians as well. If you find yourself presuming upon the grace of God today, walking in ongoing unrepentant sin and rebellion, Walking in darkness, this is a sobering warning, not just for the non-Christian, but for the Christian as well. Repent, turn, seek refuge in him. The second takeaway is is like the first, but it's tell others. Tell others, tell others about both the threat of danger and the way of escape. The the way of escape makes no sense unless people understand the threat of the danger. And so it might seem unloving and intolerant to to tell someone about the threat of the danger. But look, the the way of escape makes no sense. It's, It's incoherent unless we understand the threat and understand that this this way of escape is a universal way of escape. People from any tongue, tribe, nation, socioeconomic status. It's it's an offer that is made to all. Look, we live in a world, especially right now, that is terrified by death. If, if the last year or more has, has told me something about the world around me, is that as, as human beings, we're terrified by death. And we're terrified because with all the human intelligence and ingenuity in the world, with all of the, 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 the medical advancements and, and medical technology, we can't escape it. Death awaits us all. But, but look, death, as inescapable as it is, it's not what we should ultimately fear. Death isn't the danger. The danger, brothers and sisters, is the inescapable valley of the verdict. It's the day of the Lord. Peter, at the end of his second letter, responding to false teachers who have, have claimed that the Lord Jesus, while he may have promised that he was coming back, the, these false teachers are claiming, look, a lot of time has passed. He's, he's not actually coming. This is how Peter responds to these false teachers. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, there's that phrase again. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We have to tell others, he hasn't come back yet. But don't count as slowness to fulfill his, don't, don't 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 count as slowness as an unfulfilled promise. He's being patient so that more might be saved. We must tell others about the threat of danger. We must tell others about the way to safety. Tell it to your children and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Let's pray. Father. What a what a gracious and kind warning you've given us. In these 3 short chapters. What a what a kind warning you gave your people. Even in this, this plague of locusts, destructive though it was, you were warning your people that a, an even more dangerous day was near. Or it was near for your people, Joel's contemporaries then, and, and it's near for us today father would we be sobered by this threat of danger and would we be stirred to worship and faith and awe and thanksgiving would we be filled to hope lord would we be filled with hope lord because you have provided a way of escape in your son in the person and work of your son. Father, would we be a people that repent of our sin, that turn from our idolatry and those things that so easily entangle and ensnare us. And Lord, would we seek refuge in him today. Lord, we pray all of these things in his gracious, powerful, and mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.